Hello and welcome to the first episode of Crypto for Earthlings, the podcast where we unpack and explain the ever more confusing world of crypto. My name's Oliver Smith. I'm a technology journalist based here in London. And I'm David Stevenson, a financial writer with over oh, good many years, even decades of experience in covering the markets for the FT, for Money Week, for CityWire. Now, every fortnight, we'll be exploring a different crypto concept, abbreviation, acronym, or other. This episode, we'll be diving into the depths of Bitcoin. I reckon you've heard of that one, Ollie. Uh, asking where it came from, who created it, and why it's worth so much. Or not, as the case may be. Uh, indeed, with an interview with Dr. Garrick Harman, who's head of research and a research associate at the London School of Economics, focused on blockchain. But before we speak to Garrick, David, what's been happening in the crypto news this week? Well, I think my mission is to sort of dig out stories that have a relevance to mainstream audiences, trying to work out what the hell it is going on in these markets, and just kind of find stories that are very symptomatic. And so I've got two interesting ones here. One, Starbucks, heard of them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, they do nice coffees. Big fan of a latte. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they apparently, according to a magazine called The Block, I think, have done a deal with uh, a platform. I always get this platform's name right. I think it's called Backit. Okay. Backed. Yeah. Or maybe Backed. I don't know. B-A-K-K-T. Um, and basically, Backed is quite a big deal. Backed's uh, a big deal because it is uh, backed by an outfit called ICE, or the Intercontinental Exchange. Mm. And the Intercontinental Exchange happens to own a few exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Um, so it's, it's a really big, big cheese in the world of exchanges. So it's effectively built a platform called Backed. Mm. Yeah. And I speak the, pay, the pun is on Backed. Asset backed, get it, get it, get it. Get it. Um, and uh, basically, what they've built is a kind of Bitcoin exchange at an institutional level. The reason that really matters is because they're going after two distinct audiences. They're going after the kind of deep liquid pool of financial markets. So ICE is um, intergovernmental exchanges, big in bond markets, big in stock exchanges, where you have to have kind of nanosecond transactions at very low cost. And there's a second market, which is a, a mere $25 trillion market, uh, which is shopping transactions. Mm. Um, and, you know, everybody sort of knows by now that, you know, anything between 2 or 3% of every transaction goes in credit card charges. So the promise, uh, which has singularly failed to deliver, of being able to cut that cost of that 2 to 3% transaction fee down to maybe a few basis points mm. is huge, which is suppose where Starbucks comes in. Because the problem, of course, has always been that, uh, I mean, I think there have been a few retailers that will take Bitcoin. I think Overstock, a couple of people yeah. like them have taken them. Um, it's, not, it's not really been that popular. You can't pop down to local Tesco's or Sainsbury's or anything like that. No, nobody really, the big mainstream's taking it. Starbucks is mainstream. So yes. coffee and crypto. Coffee and crypto. The important thing to say about this, though, is I think from what we've picked up, the, the backed, which is, by the way, backed, uh, not only by the IC, but is also backed by, um, we believe, Starbucks have got an equity stake that's been reported. Mm. And Microsoft, again, no small player in this market. Mm. The Azure platform is behind a lot of the payment systems. So um, the reason why this is interesting is, is that effectively you'll be able to pay with Bitcoin, but it'll be instantly transferred back into money fiat. Bitcoin on the high street, that would be quite an interesting development. Yeah, I think we might all wait to see it actually happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think kind of this kind of thing has been promised many, many, many times before. Um, but I suppose what Bacta sort of trying to say is, you know, they're going for a full regulatory um, US exchange. Yeah. So that ticks a lot of boxes because at the moment, if you're a retailer, you know, you've probably got to deal with exchanges that may be not onshore or not fully regulated. And that's quite difficult to get past your compliance people. So I think this is quite big. Um, and, you know, th- this, the company 
who the people who are backing backed mm-hmm. um, are serious players. Mm. You know, this you know, and if Starbucks have taken equity stake and it's Microsoft and it's the IC or Intercontinental Exchange, these are big people. So anyway, uh, we we might wait to see if that actually comes about. Um, the other one, which I thought was interesting, um, Ollie, you've been trying to encourage me to sort of look beyond just Bitcoin to mm. currencies, smaller currencies or new currencies. Um, and actually, that, that twig, that you, you know that Bitcoin's not been doing terribly well. Oh, I've heard rumours. Yeah, heard rumours. I mean, it might have just come down from a peak of 20,000 bucks to something much lower. So, and you might also have noticed that that much promised thing, which is that all the currencies might react in different ways and that you'll have currencies that move in a different diversified fashion, mm. wasn't true. Mm. And by and large, all the currencies have been pretty correlated with each other. And there's probably, in reality, five or six kind of equivalents to money fiat currency mm. around. The rest are kind of tokens. But there is one that's been doing quite well. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a shocking thought, that is. Um, and, and this currency, well, it's actually a digital token. Uh, and uh, this currency, would you like to guess the name? Oh, I have no idea. You've got, got to give it a little bit of a guess. Do you think it might have bit in? B-I. <laughs> yeah, and then obviously you can't do the rest. So it's called Binance Coin. Okay. Get it? Binance. Yeah, yeah. Binary finance. Ah, okay. Yes, absolutely. Whatever that is. Um, so it's binary coin. And, and this has basically been taken from, it's a token based upon one of the world's biggest exchanges. Yeah. And and, and actually, I do think binary finance is a very interesting exchange. Mm. Talked a bit about BACT uh, a second ago. Binary finance, I think, is actually now based in Malta, but originally I think it came out of China and Hong Kong. And that is an exchange that's got deep liquidity and has been doing phenomenally well. Mm. And what they've effectively done is they've come up with a token uh, which allows you to in part pay for your trading fees. So let's let's zoom back. So you go to an exchange and maybe what you want to do, what most people want to do is they want to basically exchange money fiat, ordinary Mm -hmm. money, pounds, dollars, euros, for a cryptocurrency. Okay. But there's also a sizable number of people out there who don't ever want to go into the world of money fiat. Mm. Yeah, but they, they want to stay in their crypto world. They want to stay in their crypto world, yeah. So they want to go from Bitcoin to something else, Litecoin, something like that. So you, uh, or you want to go to a token or anything like that. So you want to stay in the crypto world. And what th- this platform, Binary Finance, allows you to do is do that at kind of quite, it's, it's pretty quick, mm-hmm. very deep, quite liquid. And, and, and what they've effectively done is that there's normally a kind of 0.1% trading fee, by the way, which is reasonably priced, I think. Mm. And what they've effectively done is they've come up with a token backed by or, or based on binary finance, which allows you to, again, get a reduction on the trading fees. So that's the, and in a sense, that's the clever bit. Yeah. Oh. So what you do is, is that if you trade on there, they'll give you some of these, these, these tokens back. Mm. Um, and, and, and over time, the value of these tokens will degrade. Mm. Okay. And, and, and that's an important distinction because effectively what they're saying is that I think they, I, I noted down, they've issued 200 million of these, of these Binance coins. Mm. Uh, but they're going to, after every year, cut back this number of these coins in issue, mm. as well as the value of the discount to the trading fees gets cut back. So, oh. so effectively, you get kind of half back in the first year, and I can't remember what it is, the next year, probably, mm. I don't know, quarter, and then keeps going down progressively. And as that rebate comes back, also the number of coins comes back. But what they're hoping to do, and what seems to have happened, is that the actual coin itself, the, the Binance coin, has shot up in value. And um, I'm just reading now from the numbers, as we literally, as we speak, um, this currency, uh, although Bitcoin has obviously been an absolute nightmare, has risen 16% over the last couple of days. 
uh, and it's at 120% since the beginning of the year. Uh, and so that's probably marks it down uh, as one of the best currencies out there. Total value of 1.8 billion, and that's up from just 800 million at the start of the year. So, hey, there's a cryptocurrency mm. that's doing well. Although, there is, strictly speaking, it's token, but <laughs> there is one out there. Thanks very much, David. Interesting okay. stuff. Now, cast your mind back to 2008. We're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to hear what our guest Garrick had to say about the birth of Bitcoin. My name is Garrick Heilman. I am the head of research at blockchain.com, the world's leading provider of wallet software and data for crypto assets. I'm also a researcher at the London School of Economics. Well, thanks for coming on, Garrick. Um, the first question, the big one, how did Bitcoin begin? So the story of Bitcoin uh, doesn't start actually in 2008 with the publication of the now famous paper by the mysterious Satoshi Nakamoto. It actually really begins many decades before that. I typically uh, highlight the year 1982 uh, when a paper by David Chom, who many people cite as the father of cryptocurrency, was published about the subject of anonymous electronic cash. And if you know anything about Bitcoin, you know that it's electronic and it has privacy features built into it. And, and really, uh, from 1982 on, we have a series of papers and work done by you know, people like Adam Back, who invented one of the protocols that Bitcoin utilizes in the late 90s, really contributing technology that Satoshi Nakamoto really packaged together mm. uh, to create Bitcoin in 2008. I think one of the most interesting things about Bitcoin is that all the technology existed 10 years prior to Bitcoin's invention in 2008. It was really uh, the marriage of these different technologies by Satoshi Nakamoto that really made uh, Bitcoin what it is. So it didn't just appear out of nowhere. As a lot of people, I think 2008, they think Bitcoin, someone, a mysterious person launched it, but it didn't. It, it is, is the culmination of all of this work, all this research. That's right. So many decades in the making, you know, people early on saw the coming electronic age and the challenges that would uh, pose to the ability to communicate uh, with any degree of privacy. And so there are all these battles um, between the U.S. government in particular and the quote-unquote cypherpunks who are developing uh, encryption technology to allow email, for example, to be transmitted securely and with a degree of privacy. And some of those same cypherpunks were interested in financial privacy. And it was that, that group led by first David Chom and then others uh, that really kind of laid the groundwork for Bitcoin's invention. Mm. And that leads us to the question of this mysterious creator. Now, who is this person, this man or woman? It's still a, an open mystery as to who Satoshi Nakamoto is. There's been claims through the years by various people uh, that they are Satoshi. There's been, you know, a hunt for Satoshi, uh, you know, and, and a number of names have been put forward. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, no one has definitively proved uh, that they are, in fact, Satoshi Nakamoto. And, um, you know, it could be a collection of people. It could be a sole person. The person may be dead for all we know. Uh, one of the remarkable things about Satoshi Nakamoto is that we think Satoshi owns roughly about a million Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, Satoshi was the first miner of Bitcoin in, uh, starting on the 3rd of January 2009. And we think during that first year, roughly, Satoshi accumulated about a million Bitcoins. But to our knowledge, Satoshi's never spent any of those Bitcoins. Mm. Uh, a million Bitcoins would make Satoshi a multi-billionaire today. 
And the idea that someone would create this technology, Bitcoin, and actually not profit from it, I think is really one of the most remarkable kind of aspects of this story. Mm. Uh, I'm not aware of any other entrepreneur who's created a multi-billion dollar enterprise and hasn't cashed in to some degree. And after he mined those first Bitcoins in 2009, what happened next? What did the industry do? Did, did people realize what these Bitcoins were? So Bitcoin was a little slow to get going. It was greeted with quite a bit of skepticism by the other cypherpunks that Satoshi originally uh, shared the idea with, in, in part because digital currency had been tried many times before and it always failed. And so the initial reaction from, uh, from a number of people was, was just, this will never work, it will never uh, scale, it's going to have some kind of problem. And, and so it was dismissed. Uh, and, and, you know, today we're, of course, aware of the fact that Bitcoins are very valuable. But for the first year and a half of Bitcoin's existence, there was no value. People mm. gave away Bitcoins. Uh, there's this famous story in May of 2010 when uh, a gentleman in Florida uh, bought two pizzas for 50,000 Bitcoins, um, <laughs> which is probably the most expensive pizza ever been, that's ever been purchased. But it was slow to, to, get, to get uptick, uh, but eventually more people started to realize this was actually working and, and actually would, was new and different and maybe had a future. When did, you, when did you first think Bitcoin could have value beyond a, a free token that people were exchanging? Well, it first came on my radar screen in 2011. That's when we started to see more publicity uh, surrounding Bitcoin. There's the infamous Silk Road marketplace, the dark web, where drugs and other goods were transacted illicitly using Bitcoin. Uh, and we had uh, one of the earliest bubbles in 2011. Wired Magazine famously wrote this article um, titled The Rise and Fall of Bitcoin in 2011. And what was the price for our <laughs> listeners? What was the price? I, I, think, I think the price got up to around $30 during that, <laughs> the 2011 bubble, if I'm not mistaken, and crashed down to, to $1 roughly. Uh, but many people at that point said, oh, it's over, you know, it's, uh, this was a nice, nice experiment, but it's failed miserably. Um, in 2011, I was doing a PhD at the LSC in economic history. And one of the first questions I had was, well, what is this thing called Bitcoin? I was studying black market currencies, currencies that are actually illegal to, uh, to use in exchange, like the US dollar in, Ar in Argentina, for example. And at that time, Bitcoin was not illegal. It wasn't a block market currency. It was used in black markets like the Silk Road, but it wasn't a black market currency. And so I uh, thought it fit better as a alternative currency. And I, I wanted to study the history of alternative currencies. That was really my first research uh, on this subject. Mm. So $30 in 2011. Now what happened next? So, you know, we've seen these kind of boom bust cycles with Bitcoin really since it started to have a price in 2010. And, uh, you know, there was a recovery after that, uh, that drop in, in price. Uh, and, and really the next kind of, I would argue, major um, market cycle started in 2013. Uh, so two years later, roughly, we saw one of the first um, Bitcoin conferences take place in San Jose. That was when I first personally interacted with the community in May of 2013. Um, just before that, there had been the Cyprus uh, deposit tax that occurred, the surprise tax of 10% on Cypriot deposits, and the price of Bitcoin had, um, had, uh, had shot up. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we started to see, you know, the market responding to, to macroeconomic events. We started to see the community coming together. And by the end of 2013, things really 
um, you know, bubble, frankly, the price shot above $1,000. Uh, there was great interest now from China uh, and Chinese traders started to get more active in the market. And then we saw a massive collapse again in 2014, really punctuated by the, um, you know, the Mt. Gox uh, implosion uh, in early 2014. And the price dropped over 80%, I think, in the, uh, the next 12 months. Mm. So the price had started to react to things happening in the real world, whether it was the Greek financial crisis you mentioned, or various other macro forces. And people were seeing Bitcoin as safety, a safe haven from what was going on in the real world. I think that's when that, that narrative really started to gather more uh, public currency. I think many people, the libertarians and other cypherpunks who were early adopters always saw it in that way as something that was going to be scarcer than a national currency, scarcer even than gold, and had properties that made it attractive relative to gold. Uh, the fact that unlike gold, you know, when the price of Bitcoin goes up, you don't see an increase in Bitcoin supply. That's you know, the opposite with gold. As the price of gold goes up, uh, you know, mining deposits that were previously not financially viable to mine all of a sudden become uh, profitable to mine. So, so there were attractive qualities that I think were apparent to people early on. But, you know, as the media started covering this in 2013, those properties became more widely known. The fact that you could use Bitcoin to transmit money across borders much less expensively than, say, a Western Union. The fact that you could use it for micro transactions and, and other use cases became more widely apparent and that this wasn't just a currency, it was actually a technology platform that things could be built on. I think that was, for me, um, kind of a key breakthrough in my understanding of Bitcoin in 2013 was that this was way beyond just an alternative currency. Mm. Now, 2017 is a key year, isn't it? And I think that's a year that many people would have started in the mainstream, started to hear about Bitcoin because the price, the price hit incredible heights. What happened? What was happening to drive the price of Bitcoin up to, what, what did it, $19,000? Roughly $19,000, $20,000 in December of 2017. So, right. So basically, uh, at the start of the year, there was some building momentum uh, in the price of Bitcoin. And in terms of what really drove um, the, the early momentum uh, in Bitcoin, it's not entirely clear, you know, what the, I think there were there was talk of institutional adoption, which did come to fruition in December of 2017 with CME and CBOE, two Chicago futures markets, listing Bitcoin futures. Uh, and, and those listings had to be approved by a major U.S. regulator, this, the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, talk of institutional adoption maybe drove some of that. But then also we had the ICO phenomenon really uh, uh, take off in, in spring of 2017 with projects raising huge sums of, of money and and that just attracted a lot more interest in the space as a whole and you know this rising tide kind of lifted Bitcoin's boat. Mm. Now today Bitcoin has fallen from 20,000 down to back around three thousand three and a half thousand dollars. Um, the question my last question is is Bitcoin still important today because there's a lot of other stuff going on in crypto now is Bitcoin, that original token, still relevant? It, it absolutely is. And uh, it still represents 50%, over 50% of the total value of all cryptocurrencies. So it's the biggest by, by far. It's the most widely traded, the most liquid. 
if you kind of imagine the cryptocurrency space is kind of a hub and spoke system, I mean, Bitcoin really does kind of sit at the center of it. And uh, for, for the cryptocurrency system as a whole to grow, Bitcoin kind of grows with it as a result. Uh, you know, it's also got the biggest brand, uh, the most users, the most adoption across exchanges. It's not as dominant as it used to be when it was 80 to 90% of the market value, but it still uh, has outsized importance to the cryptocurrency sector. And its price, where does the price go next? So it's a good question. We, we don't really know. I mean, it's, you know, uh, something that is influenced by a whole variety of, of factors. Regulation has been incredibly important to Bitcoin's price. Interestingly, when regulations tighten, uh, you know, we've seen actually Bitcoin's price, I think, respond positively more often than not. Uh, it's helped legitimize Bitcoin uh, and, and, you know, regulators have uh, by and large not sought to ban Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which uh, I think is also a very positive development because for many of the early years of Bitcoin, there was this concern that it just would be, you know, outlawed. It, mm. it was something that regulators wouldn't tolerate with the Chicago futures markets, with, um, you know, the, you know, Justice Department auctioning off Bitcoins that were seized from the Silk Road marketplace. Law enforcement typically doesn't auction off cocaine, for example, that it seizes, right? So that's a pretty strong endorsement that this is, you know, a, a legal uh, asset. So I think there's a growing acknowledgement that this is going to be here. And uh, in terms of where the price goes, you know, the main use for Bitcoin today is as digital gold, as a store of value, hence the, this term crypto asset. Uh, is starting to supplant the term cryptocurrency when we, we talk about Bitcoin. Uh, there's a real question, though, as to, you know, who's going to be buying uh, digital gold? Uh, and, and, you know, will central, central banks, for example, start to accumulate uh, Bitcoin? That obviously could be hugely uh, impactful on Bitcoin's price. But Bitcoin here to stay for now. Garrick, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So David, what do you think of that? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think just a couple of things. Uh, number one, the kind of pedigree, the history of the backstory. In a sense, that was a kind of very clear and very concise technological explanation. But I suppose the ideas that animate alternative currencies go back even further, mm. I would argue. If you look at, and the libertarians were name checked, but if you look at the kind of libertarian free market ideas coming out from Friedrich Hayek, mm. um, actually a lot of those originally from the 40s, but Hayek started to articulate them in, in the 50s and 60s, and then other people picked them up, the kind of Austrian school and then Milton Friedman. Um, they have this idea that you can't fundamentally trust money fiat, mm. you know, traditional paper currencies because they're issued by central banks and central banks are under the control of bankers and bankers are central bankers and central banks. Um, are, can be influenced by what governments want to do with inflation. That idea has been kicking around there for ages and actually amongst the libertarian free market right, kind of alternative currencies, mm. uh, the technology wasn't there, but alternative currencies have really have been kicking around for probably since the 70s. It just mm. they didn't have the, the medium technology in the way to do it. And I think the other thing which has struck me as well is, is, is absolutely the point that Bitcoin is still relevant because although everybody likes to say, you know, what, what are the next up and coming currencies and that kind of stuff, the reality of it is um, people will always gravitate uh, towards the most liquid, the, the widest market with the most efficiency. And uh, that's not necessarily great for cryptos. They're not that efficient in many respects. Uh, but the, the most liquid, the, the most easily available market. And that remains Bitcoin uh, mm. overwhelmingly. And therefore, you know, these ideas that other currencies would take over. I'm a big fan of Ether and Ethereum. 
Absolutely, it makes sense, but mm. you just can't get away from it. It's kind of the dollar greenback issue. Yeah, there are, you know, there's the dollar, there's, the brand value. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, and there's the yen, there's the euro. You know, and they've all at one point been, you know, in the renminbi, you know, the, the, the Chinese currency is all going to overtake the dollar. You know what? It doesn't. And, mm. and the reason there are lots of reasons why the dollar remains strong, and they're not, and a lot of them to do with military power and economic power. But you know why? It's because it's the most liquid, most easily available. You can walk down the street, you can buy dollars, and the bit offer spreads, the tight spreads on dollars are incredibly tight, it's a very mm. liquid market. That speaks strongly to kind of Bitcoin's continuing prevalence. So Bitcoin here to stay. I think so. Now, each week we'll also be talking crazy crypto <laughs> with a rather left field story from the crazy world of crypto. Um, this week we're joined by George Geddes, a financial reporter here in London, who's picked out our crazy crypto story for the week. George, what have you got for us? Hello. Well, uh, I've got a very exciting new product to launch. Not only is it exciting for the crypto space, but it's also quite exciting for the emerging countries. So a company, a fintech crypto startup called Electronium has just launched its own M1... <laughs> Electronium. Electronium, yes. <laughs> uh, has launched its own uh, a new phone uh, called the M1, which is incorporating its own cloud mining technology. So it's going to have a cloud software which will be mining its coin in the background called ETN. The, coin, uh, the token at the moment is currently only worth 0.0059 of a dollar. However, there has been some uh, talks of the token eventually be uh, worth over a dollar in the next year or two. But the phone itself will be worth, uh, is valued at $80 and is going to be uh, targeted at emerging countries. Uh, the technology in the background could be earning users up to $3 a month. So after about two years of having the phone, essentially, phone. it would be paying off the value of the phone. So when I plug my phone in at night to charge it up, it's mining away a cryptocurrency in the background. Yes. So as soon as you install the, the, the phone comes with the app already installed. Once you set it up, it will be running in the background offline. You don't need to be connected to the Wi-Fi or the internet and it will be uh, mining away. And yeah, be earning your tokens. And is it, is it based on Android? It's certainly not based on an Apple platform. I can't see Apple doing that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it is an Android. Yeah, so yeah. I thought it might be Android. Funny that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much, George. New smartphones for everyone soon. Um, in our next episode, we'll be talking to crypto investor Jamie Burke, the founder of Outlier Ventures, about how the crypto venture industry um, is approaching this market. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. We have a particular thesis that we call the Convergence Thesis, uh, where we think the most interesting commercial opportunity, for us at least, is new protocols that are being created that optimize for uh, different problems to Bitcoin, but that collectively form a kind of technology stack that is representative of the next phase of the web. Mobility is an area, kind of a a natural focus for us that falls out of the convergence thesis and this attention on the machine to machine economy. So mobility, smart cities, industry 4.0, anywhere where there are lots of IoT devices deployed or where there are increasing forms of autonomy. Alt 5.